Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Good morning everyone, it'd be fantastic if you'd have the passage open before you. The page for the passage, Colossians 3, is 957. 957. So I want you to think for a second, what has been a defining moment in your life? What's been a defining moment in your life? An event that went a long way in defining your character and your identity. What's been a defining moment in your life? Maybe it's an achievement. Maybe it's a failure. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something that was done to you. For 20 minutes on a Sunday morning at 9.20am, it's hard for me to listen to these days, the ABC radio airs a program called The Year That Made Me. In fact, I don't even know if it still does. You might be able to tell me. The Year That Made Me with Hugh Remington. It's a really interesting program when it was aired. I used to listen to it on podcast. And it basically asks the question, what's the year that forged your identity? What's the year that made you who you are today? So a few examples from the radio program. Lisa McCune, the actor, says that the year that made her was 2001, the year she gave birth to her first child. Uh, Tim Winton, the West Australian novelist, says that it was 1978 when he was involved in a horrific car accident. Chris Judd, the AFL player, said it was 2004 when he won the Brownlow medal. That's what made him, that's what was a defining moment in his life. For Stan Grant, the journalist and foreign correspondent, the year that made him was 1981 when he was 18 years old. He met a university professor and an advocate for Indigenous rights who encouraged him to go to university. That's the year that made Stan Grant. And finally, Tim Ferguson, the comedian. It was 2010 when he came out as having MS. These were all defining moments for these particular people. Uh, Last week we saw, we've been in the series of Colossians, and, and last week we saw that if we have Jesus, we have everything. There's no gradient to the Christian life. There's no such thing as a second class Christian. So it's actually not possible, we looked at last week, it's not possible to be not a very good Christian. It's not possible to be not a very good Christian if you've got Jesus. You've got everything. And genuine Christian living always flows from fullness. That was last week. And, and this week, we're, we're looking at the overflow from fullness. The overflow from fullness. The fullness that we have in Jesus. If we have Jesus, what type of life results? So we're going to jump into the passage. And the first point is a sort of a recap or an add-on from a bit that we talked about last week. So verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3 of Colossians, not Philippians. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. So I want to focus on verse 3. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
As we looked at last week, when Jesus died, we died. When he rose, we rose. His life in God is our life in God. You might have heard of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor in World War II in in Germany. And he was in prison for two years. And he died a month before the war ended. And in prison, he penned these words. It is in fact more important for us to know what God did to Israel and in God's son, Jesus Christ, than to discover what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important, more important than the fact that I will die. He says, I find, I find salvation not in my life story, but only in the story of Jesus Christ. What he's saying there is at the deepest and spiritual level, what happened to Jesus is more defining to your identity than anything else. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The idea of being connected to Jesus, being united to Jesus, being in Jesus, is something we talked about last week, and it's all over the New Testament, and it underpins the passage we're looking at this morning. And it's super important for us to understand what it means to be in Christ, to be in Jesus. There's an author called Rory Shiner, He'll be speaking at our weekend away next year. Uh, Roy Shana, he wrote a book called One Forever. And in this book, he tries to help us understand what it means to be in Christ. And to help us understand what it means to be in Christ, he takes us to the airport, waiting for us to board our plane. So this is his attempt to help us understand what it means to be in Christ, connected to Jesus. So there's you and the plane, and you want to get to your destination. In order to get to your destination, what relationship do you need to have with the plane? Will it help if the plane inspires you? You watch it take off and you whisper to yourself, one day I could do that too. What about following the plane? Should we chase the plane down down towards the destination as fast as our legs will take us? No, the plane doesn't inspire us. It doesn't ask us to follow it. The key relationship you need, we need with the plane is not to be under it, behind it, or inspired by it, we need to be in it. Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. Being united with Christ, being in Christ, is everywhere in the New Testament, and it's a truly life-altering reality. Paul says in Galatians 2, I, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's his connectedness to Jesus. He's in Jesus. And for a Christian, your identity, at its deepest level, is defined by your connection to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You're bound to him. So whatever is true of him is true of you. We need to understand this, to understand this passage And it's a reality, although it's true now, sort of at a spiritual level, it's true now, it will be revealed for all to see in the future. So look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him 
in glory. Having a grip on this most basic, life-defining spiritual connection to Jesus is essential for us to continue in the passage. And so we're going to do that exactly, uh, exactly that now. We started with verse 3. Let's jump back to verses 1 and 2. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So the logic's pretty simple. Since we've been raised with Christ, we're to set our hearts and our minds on different things. But what does it mean to set our hearts and our minds on things above? First, what it doesn't mean is setting our hearts and minds on things like the pearly gates and clouds and harps. Paul isn't calling us to spiritual escapism here. So that we're so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. That's not what Paul's saying here. Whatever this means, setting our hearts and our minds on things above isn't about escaping from the world, centering our lives on the heavenly realities will propel us into the practicalities of our daily life with more concern, diligence, and love. So that's got to be the result of whatever this means. So rather than being an escape, setting our hearts and minds on things above means having a different vantage point from which to view life. Setting our hearts and minds on things above means having a different vantage point from which to view life. So let me explain. When I got married, I had to begin thinking like a married man. I had a new vantage point to view life. Suddenly, as a married man, I had to be more responsible with my money. And that was something that took a long time for me to learn, as Erin would tell you. I had to take my work more seriously. I was an exercise physiologist at the time. And my first job out of university was with a company with poor management. And so people were leaving the company left, right and centre. But I was married and I had to take work more seriously. Erin was studying, so I had to keep on working until I found a better moment to leave the job. And not only that, I had to begin seeing the world through a tidiness lens. Arian likes to keep things clean. Anyway, being married means a new mindset. It's the same with being raised with Christ. We need to have the concerns and the mindset of a spiritually raised person. Our entire outlook must be characterised by our bonds with the ascended Christ. And that changes everything about the way we see the world. So we no longer see the world from an earthbound point of view, an earthbound point of view. And that perspective says life's short. So live it up, consume, build wealth, secure yourself. An earthbound perspective says life has the meaning you choose for it. It's ultimately a selfish life and, and it's one of pursuing your own desires. But setting our hearts and our minds on Christ means that we see our lives not as ebbing away, but as held tightly and securely in God. Your life is with Christ in God. Have you thought about that? Your life is secure with Christ in God. It can't get any more secure than that. There's no, you only live once from this perspective. There's no fear. There's no scurrying around to secure yourself a, a good life. Instead, setting our hearts and our minds on Christ 
means that his interests become our interests. His desires and loves become our desires and loves. We no longer serve ourselves, we serve Christ. It's a new mindset, a different vantage point from, uh, to view life. And that's what Paul means here. We need to have a new mindset. So we're united with Christ, we're in Christ, having died and risen with him. We have this new mindset, set our hearts and our minds on things above, and there's a new way of life. So verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In these verses, Paul is using a clothing metaphor. He's saying God has made us alive. God's made us alive. And so he says, dress like it. But before we put on the new clothes, we need to take off the old clothes. And so what he says is old What he says that we need to take off is sexual license and lust, being unable to control our desires. Take that off. Greed, wanting more and more without measure. Take it off. Anger and rage, wanting something so much you explode. Take it off. Slander, filthy language, lying, speaking in ways that are convenient and expedient. Take it off. These are just the poisonous fruits that simply are the result of a person living for short-sighted desires, living from an earthbound frame of mind. There's no love here. There's no concern for others. This way of life only hurts and destroys. It only hurts and destroys. And that's why God hates it. And we should too. And Paul's language, I don't know if you noticed, it's not polite. He says, put these things to death. He says, kill them. He's, he's encouraging us to murder these devices. Uh, these vices. Maybe devices too. <laughs> he's encouraging us to murder these vices. And why? Because, verse 9 and 10, because we've taken off our old, old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, uh, renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There's an HBO miniseries produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks called Band of Brothers. And in this series, it documents the stories of a US parachute regiment in World War II. And one of the episodes, episode three, starts in pitch black. It's showing the view of a soldier who's hiding in a ditch somewhere in France. He got separated from his regiment. And later in the episode, another soldier asks, do you know why you're hiding in that ditch, Blythe? He said, I was scared. The other soldier said, we're all scared. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. If you're a Christian, the truth is that you're already dead. You're dead to sin. That's the truth about you. You're dead to sin. And so Paul's saying, take it off. Don't flirt with it. 
Put it to death. (laughs) But we don't stop there. One writer puts it like this. To return to sin would be like deciding to dress in your old grave clothes again. Uh, To follow again the patterns of this world is like a, a living body deciding to lay on the ground and stay as still and as stiff as possible. Sure, it's physically possible, possible to pretend your body is in a coffin, but you're not in a coffin. You are alive. We died with Christ, became alive with Christ. So verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself, yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the life of someone who's being raised with Christ. This is the life of overflow. In Christ you are full. You've got resurrection life in you and it overflows into compassion. Which is being sensitive to the needs of others. Especially the down and out. The life of the resurrection involves kindness. A gracious sensitivity towards others. A gracious sensitivity towards others because you care for them. Humility, serving others without caring whether it's noticed or not. Gentleness, the willingness to make allowances for others. Patience, willing to endure wrongs instead of exacting revenge. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Understanding that others will stuff up and sometimes they'll cause hurt. But having a stance that's ready to forgive. And love, it binds them all together. It's like the overcoat. Without love, there's no way we can be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle or forgiving. These are all the characteristics of someone who's in Christ, who's in the aeroplane with Christ. This is the overflow. And to sum up verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This passage shows us that the Christian life is a life that's under construction. The Christian life is about what we do catching up with who we are. The Christian life is about what we do catching up with who we are. We've died with Christ. We're risen with Christ. It's about our actions catching up with that reality. And so I love the way C.S. Lewis paints the picture of a life under construction. I'm pretty sure if you continue with this church for the next five years, you'll have heard the whole of me Christianity read to you from the pulpit. So um, he writes in me Christianity, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting, rid of the, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs need it doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out an old wing, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in the palace himself. 
So I began this morning by asking, what's been a defining moment in your life? What's been a defining moment in your life? And um, as Brian Rosner points out in his excellent book on Christian identity, a defining moment, a defining moment often leads to a signature move, a repeated action that has your name written all over it. A defining moment often leads to a signature move, and that is an action that has your name written all over it. So if you, if you ever see someone staring off in the distance blankly, that's so Dave, that action. It's a signature move. I'm good at that blank stare. Um, so, for instance, another defining moment for people born in the 1920s might have been growing up during the Great Depression of the 1930s, a defining moment, growing up in the Great Depression. A corresponding signature move throughout their lives might be thriftiness and frugality. Or another example, a defining moment for Nelson Mandela was his unjust 27-year imprisonment on Robben Island. And surprisingly, his signature move was a posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Being united and raised with Christ brings its own defining moment and signature move. According to Colossians 3, the defining moment for all believers is something that happened 2,000 years ago. We died and rose to new life in union with Christ. It changes everything. Because of that, we, like Jesus, are beloved children of God. That's our defining moment. It happened 2,000 years ago. And the signature move that flows out of the, identi- out of the identity, out of that identity, us being children of God, the signature move is acts of love. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness are all signature moves that flow from that defining moment. Just as our identity as children of God was forged through an act of amazing love, so too, our lives would be lives of costly, selfless, other-centered love. So to tie the sermon off, if you were ever asked to be interviewed by Hugh Remington on the ABC's The Year That Made Me, I wonder what year you'd recall. I suggest you say, the year that made you was AD 33. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have died to the old way of life. We've died to sin and selfishness, to lies and greed, to unchecked desires, that we have died to that. And that in him, we've risen to new life, the resurrected life that you've implanted in us, the fruit of the spirit. You've given us the power to be your children, ascended in this world. And so we pray, help us be this more and more, help our lives and our actions align more and more with who we are. We pray this in the name of your son who loved us and has welcomed us into the family. In the name of Christ. Amen. So we have his grace with Christ to be a new creation and his transformation by grace alone. Let's stand and